In February 2022, Oliver and I caught up with artists Mary Ellen Strom and Danielle Abrams as they were finalizing plans for two related installations of their amazing project, Rights Along the Shore, examining the histories of segregated swimming sites in the United States, being presented at Mills Gallery at Boston Center for the Arts and at Stable Arts in Washington, D.C. Before we bring you that interview, we're adding these few new words at the top. It's the end of April 2022, and we want to honor Danielle's passing earlier this month and to express our immense sense of loss, which we share with all who knew and loved Danielle and all who've been touched by her art and life. Here's our conversation. Welcome to Weird Sounds, an audio companion to the Boston Art Book Fair and Boston Center for the Arts. I'm your host, Oliver Mack. And I'm also your host, Randy Hopkins. Oliver and I are the co-founders of the Boston Art Book Fair, which has brought us into contact with an incredible array of artists and creative thinkers. We want to share some of these conversations with you. And that's exactly why we started Weird Sounds, as a podcast to document the ways that people are making art all around us these days. We have so many questions for artists because we love hearing about the ideas and images, inspirations and aspirations behind their practices, and we know you will too. Wow, Randy, uh, who did we just talk to for this episode of the podcast? We just had an amazing conversation with the artists Mary Ellen Strom and Danielle Abrams, who are doing a collaborative project at Boston Center for the Arts Mills Gallery this spring. We had our eyes open, right? Uh, wide open. I mean, we talked about everything. We talked about uh, Southeast desegregation, continual segregation. We talked about mountain time arts, Yellowstone parks, indigenous history, uh, the intersection with public audience. It was just, it went everywhere in terms of what it means to be a collaborative performance artist in today's age. And I don't even know what it meant previously. Yeah, no kidding. Those guys took such a deep dive into this really important topic. I hadn't known that much about the history of Boston and Southie around race and recreation. Uh, this is just a really moving and warm actually insightful view into a difficult topic. Well, let's check out this conversation now. Randy, would you like to welcome our, our crew here? I would love to welcome our crew here. We are here together with Mary Ellen Strom and Danielle Abrams, amazing artists from the Boston art scene and beyond. And we're talking to them today about their new projects and everything else we want to learn about uh, what, what makes them tick about that, how they work together, how they work separately, uh, and what they have on their minds. So welcome. Thank you, Randy. It's a pleasure to be here. And wonderful to work with you at the BCA at Mills Gallery. Thank you. So that's the perfect segue. I think we're going to start out by just asking you, like, talk to us. We're so excited about your most recent project, project that you're in the middle of. But I um, want to hear from you guys. Describe, tell us what you're working on. Okay. Would you like to start, Danielle? Sure. Okay. Um, well, this is a project that um, that grew. It is a series of projects that look at segregated recreation 
in the north in the northern and southern United States. And it started off with me doing research um, starting in 2017 in New Orleans. I came across a beach called Lincoln Beach, which was a black segregated beach from 1954 to 1964. And it was made um, sort of as an accommodation for the black community during legalized segregation. It was a way of keeping blacks from wanting or even desiring to use the larger whites-only beach, Pontchartrain Park or Pontchartrain Beach, which is pretty notorious. And uh, Mr. Leon Waters, um, who um, is the manager and main tour guide and founder of Hidden History Tours, um, taught me about Lincoln Beach was a survivor of attending Lincoln Beach himself. And I learned about the history of uh, segregation and how folks survived it because so many black seniors are still alive and still very cogent about um, their resilience and the way that they the way that they navigated segregation in the 1950s and the 1940s and prior to that. And um, Mary Ellen, I, I did this research and then Mary Ellen, I invited her to collaborate with me and we have just been taken off since then. We're going to do a live performance with video installation. And we um, because of covid and um, health and health necessities, public health necessities, uh, we moved into doing a live streamed presentation of the performance from Mary Ellen's studio in the South End. And from then on, we um, started to investigate Carson Beach because we live, we both live in Boston, and um, we investigated a um, rebellion that took place in 1975. There were a number of them, which we'll get into, but uh, there was a rebellion that we're looking up at in that took place in 1975, starting at Franklin Park in Boston, and it was a 300-car cavalcade that went down to Carson Beach in South Boston, where blacks were being refused access to the public beach by the white community, and it was a... Um, certainly a, uh, a, a an offshoot of what was going on with the school's new, uh, desegregation policy. And um, we were also looking at Anacostia Pool, which um, had a rebellion in 1949, even though, again, this was a public pool, a public facility, when blacks tried to use the water, a protest took place, and black people in general and their white supporters, their allies, were attacked. And now I'm going to turn it over to Mary Ellen. <laughs> well, thank you, Danielle. That was really great. And thank you, Oliver and Randy. And the project Rights Along the Shore that Danielle spoke about that we'll be doing at the Mills Gallery. For me, the goal of this project has been to work to understand where we are in 2022 in terms of the people of Boston's rights to education and the people's rights to the healing powers of recreation. And as yourselves and probably the people listening to this podcast know that these rights were taken away from the Black population of Boston through the process of segregation. There were attempts to restore those rights through a process of forced 
desegregation, but what we're looking at is have those rights been restored. And studying the history and the disturbing events in Boston during the 70s that demonstrated this incomprehensible anti-blackness around desegregation, that has framed this project for us as a location to imagine a political present and a future where perhaps anti-blackness is not a concept, where loving black people is foregrounded, where all of the citizens of Boston's commitment and desire is to foreground the rights and the health of our Black and Indigenous populations, and that this is a critical obligation for reparation and restitution. Yesterday, we had a conversation with Michael Patrick McDonald. Danielle, would you think that this would be a good thing to discuss right now in terms of South Boston? I, indeed. Would you want to jump in here? I mean, will you guys do the introduction about who that is? That is obviously a really important name that comes up when you're looking at this history, especially in South Boston, right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mary Ellen, could you just um, say the full title of Michael Patrick McDonald's book, which has been so instrumental at um, opening this conversation in Boston. I know sure. it's called All Souls, but I can't remember. Yeah, the it's called All Souls. And um, it became kind of this very important document as a way to understand what happened in South Boston and the ways that kind of our politicians at the time were living outside of the greater Boston area, as in the judge, his last name is Garrity, or Ted Kennedy. Uh, Garrity was living in Wellesley, and Ted Kennedy was living in Hyannis at the time. And this was outside of the greater Boston area where the forced desegregation was happening. But what occurred is um, the populations of Roxbury and Dorchester were bussed into South Boston that was a poor white community. Both schools were, the schools in Roxbury and Dorchester and South Boston were all extraordinarily challenged at the time. And there was um, just horrible riots that ensued. And it was also at a time when Black folks were really fighting for education and really kind of working with the NAACP and extraordinary, resilient, organized ways to improve their children's education. And at the same time, the people in South Boston, a lot of their young people were dropping out of school, suffering from the opioid crisis and one of the highest rates of suicide in the country. So it was um, just a a horrible social experiment and debacle that happened. And what Michael Patrick McDonald was talking to us about yesterday is his restorative justice work that he was doing before he wrote the book. And he does... He does um, like a five-week curriculum that he works on with people that are from both black and white communities doing restorative justice work, as well as he does kind of shorter circle workshops. But what he was talking to Danielle and I about is how difficult this has become to do in South Boston now that it's gentrified and how there is 
an urban population there of uh, young young professionals who do not necessarily have children but both the black population and the white population have had to move out to the suburbs for cost reasons as well as when he looks at the photographs that we're talking about uh, whether it's around the so-called busing crisis or the Carson Beach rebellion all of the people that he knew in the photographs have passed so he has been incredibly enlightening for us to be in conversation with Absolutely. He's been a leader and he's also vocalized the experience of being a child and experiencing the desegregation of the public schools in Boston from outer forces and also the drug addiction and um, loss of life, incredible loss of life that um, occurred not just because of the violence, but because of um, because of addiction. One of the neighborhoods uh, I want to point out is uh, Columbia Point Projects, which is part of that peninsula um, that includes Carson Beach. And uh, Columbia Point Projects, like D Street Projects, Old Colony Projects, they were always multiracial. They were not just black and white, but there was a Latinx population. There was an indigenous population. There were um, newer migrants to the city in the 1970s. Now, although, you know, South Boston or that time in Southie is very often talked about as a as a black and Irish conflict, there were people of other ethnicities and other geographic and global origins. Um, but what happened was um, everybody on or everybody living near Carson Beach and the projects were working class or poor. They were living below the poverty line. Yet these were integrated projects. This was integrated housing. Blacks and whites and other folks were all living together. And it wasn't until the desegregation of the public schools that a schism evolved. And that schism divided people who were of the same class background with the potential to actually build coalitions, but it divided them racially. And at that point, white people moved to the Southie projects, Old Colony, D Street, et cetera, and black folks remained at Columbia Point projects. Everybody was being heavily policed during the busing and the, dese the desegregation of the schools in the busing period. There were police on the roofs of Columbia Point projects. The Black Panther Party and Mau Mau, these were activist groups that were doing mutual aid. They were performing mutual aid in the projects, providing education, providing breakfast for the school children. And at that point, their offices, their their spaces to organize at the projects were taken away by not just the Boston Police Department, but also federal tactical authorities. Such a it is a really fascinating story. I was gonna say I didn't grow up in the Boston area and I read All Souls with is that what's called with my daughter when she was in, I think, like middle school, like it was a required reading thing. And it opened my eyes like wow to the situation. It makes me think about like uh, literature as public art, right? That book, I mean, that book, like, 
is out there circulating to a bunch of kids read. I mean, the way that that information actually gets conveyed and sinks into people, something like a book becomes public art in that way. It also makes me think my first experience in South Boston was with Christoph Wodichko's really powerful project too. So I mean, I want to hear more about the history, but I'm also really, really interested in how you formulate your platform of public art, which is really interesting and unusual, what you guys have devised as like a voice for how to share the story. Because I think this is always really unexpected how an artist, whether you're a writer, a poet, a performer, a filmmaker, like how you decide to connect and make art public to try and tell such an important story. Randy, I just want to thank you for bringing that up. And I just want to jump in and say that Michael Patrick McDonald was one of the central advisors for Carolyn Meehan, who curated Christoph Wadichku's Bunker Hill project that he did in Charlestown. Mm -hmm. And he has spoken to us about how seminal that experience was for him. And also that we're hoping that Michael does one of his healing circles at the Mills Gallery. Mm, Oh my gosh, that'd be beautiful. It would. It really would. It really would. So we're currently working toward that. Um, I've been like making public art since the beginning of my practice. And most of my field research before Danielle gratefully invited me to be part of um, this project with her has been in the Rocky Mountain West, where I'm from, in southwestern Montana. And currently, the project that I'm doing there is called Yellowstone Revealed, and it's for the 150th anniversary of Yellowstone Park. And it's with an organization called Mountain Time Arts. And we are working with 17 different Indigenous scholars from different tribes within Montana and Wyoming to create public art projects within Yellowstone National Park next summer that restore the erased narratives of peoples who claim ancestral heritage with Yellowstone. So that is an intertribal project, and it's uh, working with Indigenous artists and scholars. And my role in that project is not to author the projects, but to help steward them. And I'll I'll let Danielle talk about this project. Thanks, Mary Ellen. I'm so excited for the Yellowstone project and can't wait to watch that come together. You know, Randy, I mean, you know, doing I, I was always a solo performance artist. Um, I've been doing that, you know, for 30 years now. And performance is naturally, or at least the way I was doing it, it's naturally engaged with the public. My energy comes from the public, but um, also my uh, subjectivity that I perform, or I should say maybe the personifications that I perform, are really for, are really formed in the presence of not just audiences, but also um, the the interiority that gets developed through my intersections with the public as a biracial artist, as a biracial butch queer woman. So much of my identity um, gets formed through what uh, W.E.B. Du Bois would call double consciousness, my sense of self and my sense of performed character really comes from my intersections and encounters with others in the world, 
whites, blacks, queers, straights, non-binary, gendered people, older folks, younger folks. I mean, you know, the list goes on. So um, for me, I, you know, my research has, yes, involved books and attending seminars, lectures, things like that. But really, the bulk of my research it happens through my interactions with others. So when I was working on the Lincoln Beach Project, I would say that the public element began right from the get-go talking to seniors, sur- black survivors of segregation during the Jim Crow era, and then survivors of de facto segregation, which still continued even after the Civil Rights Act. I ran art workshops at the Carrollton Holly Grove Senior Center, which is an amazing place. And um, the seniors painted their memories of Lincoln Beach and visualized an amusement park that they would want rebuilt there in 2022. Some of them actually wanted subsidized housing. They felt that they deserved a, a reclamation of that land. Um, but as far as the work that we're doing right now with Carson Beach and with Anacostia Pool in Washington, D.C., um, again, so much of that work is being formed through interviews and conversations with residents of the area, like Michael Patrick McDonald and Kenneth Carroll in Washington, D.C., but also leaders who are producing initiatives to the well-worn stereotype of blacks not being able to swim for various reasons. There is a truth to the impact of that stereotype. And um, we are particularly interested in speaking with Kim Janey, an initiative that um, she discussed in um, the Boston newspaper about black, black swimming and black lifeguarding, an in- initiative between the YMCA and the Boston Public Schools in Dorchester and Roxbury and Hyde Park. So, I mean, when when I think of public art, I certainly think about being in the public or the material coming from public encounters and interactions with people that have survived these periods, citizens of these that are still living in these in these neighborhoods and can talk about the cultural, the parts of the culture that are thriving in these neighborhoods and the parts of the culture that are still impacted by segregation and uh, and those that are using creativity and the body and action to um, really produce new cultural forms, alternatives to the past. I just love it. I, it's so fascinating. I mean, oh, there's so many threads here, too. I mean, I'm so curious about, you know, that you guys, A, water. I mean, water. Oh, my God. Like, it's, it's healing and it's life-giving and it's like, but and it's a public pool. I mean, it's something we're all made of. It's our planet is made out of. It ends up being so deeply metaphorical and it's so real at the same time. So that's so cool. And sports, right? And athleticism. I mean, I think like the the kind of threads, the the those threads in this project are really interesting. It, like they're so rich. I I don't know. Does recreation like feel different to you as you like look at it through this lens? Ah, Absolutely, Randy. I mean, and thank you for bringing that up. There's been numerous neurological studies that have come out recently about the impacts of humans being in water, as well as humans being in nature, which I'm, I'm sure you know about. Sometimes it's called blue mind 
or green mind, or what we're doing right now is called gray mind, which no, is not so good not for good. us being in front of the screen. <laughs> be like turquoise mind here. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, you know, the kind of ability to recreate impacts our health, impacts our mental health, our life longevity, our quality of life. As well as there's all the issues around who has time for leisure activity. But if it's not even a viable option, the time question isn't necessarily the question. I mean, how can how can we make recreational opportunities inclusive for all is the question. And we're so glad about the work of that Kim Janey is initiating here in the city of Boston. Sure. I mean, we there are certain fellow travelers um, that I have um, that we've both explored. Uh, for instance, there's a group in New York um, called the Harlem Honeys and Bears, which are um, they are a black synchronized swimming troop of um, elders, folks that I don't want to say exact ages, but they look to be about in my range and older, (laughs) 40s and up. Um, okay, fifties. Um, but also, I mean, there are there are projects right now um, that are looking at the history of recreation and the impact of segregation. There is a, a project. Um, you know, if I if you, I can mention a few folks that are doing work about water. Um, Victoria Pritzia, creator of an installation, it's a group show, an exhibition that is called Pool, and that's taking place at an actual pool, a public pool that has been abandoned in um, in Pennsylvania, I believe, um, Pittsburgh, Fairmount Waterworks. I have also, I mean, we have, we have become aware of um, a piece called Druid Hill Park, Number two, it's in Baltimore, and what the artist has done is filled one of the abandoned public uh, municipal pools with grass, and she has only left the ladders that go into the pool. So you're aware of the pool's presence through its absence. Um, These are just some of the the initiatives. Um, We've also been very inspired by Ebony Roseman's project in Maryland called Black Kids Swim. And she is developing or she has developed a webinar series between swimmers in the in the uh, Maryland and Washington, D.C. area and Gory Island in Dakar. Gosh, thank you so much. Those are all amazing. We'll like look for notes and make sure we can refer people to those. It gives some really nice context for this. And I don't know. I'm sorry I keep being so flipped, but it does make me wish we could have a pool party at the mills also. Yeah. Are you guys are you guys uh, going to invite me to your performance at an abandoned pool somewhere when you can find one? Not, it's not so difficult to find abandoned pools. Um, it's hard to get people to show up to them, though. <laughs> like you can't just send an evite. It's only I think it's only the realm of art, performance art, where you could get people to participate in something like that. But the, um, so your your work at the mills is going to be is it going to be an installation as well as performance, or is it the just the performance? It's a video installation, kind of with performance. Mm-hmm. And we're also doing um, a series of public-facing 
events, as in panels and hopefully a, a healing circle, as well as some online events with people who um, are no longer live here, but were involved with the NAAC demonstrations in the 70s. Oh, as Mary Ellen mentioned, uh, Michael Patrick McDonald, in addition to being as a writer, a writer of public art, I love that, Randy, he also uh, conducts restorative justice circles. So that's the healing circle that you're talking about, the restorative justice. Mm -hmm. Is that is that comprised of just like dialogue where we could talk about the past or what, what's the healing circle for those who are uninitiated, such as myself? Well, that's a good that's a that's a good question, Oliver. I mean, you know, this is Michael's project that will part. He will become a partner with us and expand upon the information that we're providing. The way he's described this is that what gets produced is storytelling and story writing. And it is a way for people to come together and what we, we, we would be in, we would be curating this event. He would be inviting people that had, um, some interaction with, um, the Carson Beach protests and also the desegregation and busing of schools in the 1970s. So he would be bringing um, a particular group that was particularly affected by this uh, by this era. You guys also talk about the fact that that a young generation today doesn't know very much about this, and that some and I mean, and it's uh, it's ongoing, as you say, but also, but that I thought that was really interesting. You told me something about um, that the school in South Boston still has like horrible graffiti and things left over from this period, and the, the students who are there. I mean, people really don't have any idea like what it where it comes from or what it refers to. Well, you mean to. people like students now are seeing like racist graffiti from back then still? Is that what you mean? Not exactly. Not, right? not exactly. Not exactly. I mean, I think that I, I just read um, a study by the Boston Foundation that I, um, I wish I had up in front of me right now, but at currently within the Boston public school system, depending on what school you're in, it's something between 5 and 13% of the student population is white. It's mostly a Latinx population as well as a black population. But the schools as they are right now are very segregated. And they are, they are mostly populated by young people of color and oftentimes they are not attending a, a school in their own neighborhood. So um, the story that we were sharing with you, Randy, is from a young woman named Alicia Baez, who in 2007 to 2014 went to South Boston High School. She grew up in Roxbury and went there on a bus every day. And she is originally from the Dominican Republic and came from parents who did not really know about the history of South Boston. And when she got to school in 2007, uh, is it uh, KSW? Is that what the graffiti is, Danielle? Uh, yes. There were KSW tags everywhere. And um, she didn't understand South what that meant. And it's, or KSBW, it's keep South Boston white is what 
that graffiti means. And and when she, when she kind of be, really realized what that mean meant and that she was there and she was a young woman who was traveling there on her own every day, it became a very frightening, untenable situation, very difficult for her to learn. She stayed in that uh, in that school for three years and really struggled, didn't graduate from there, dropped out and finished in another high school. But at the time, that school was mostly young people of color who were, you know, in within this community that was not welcoming them at all. Most of the kind of white young people that lived in South Boston were going to school at the time outside of South Boston or in private schools. Boston has a very uh, small population of uh, young people from the ages of 5 to 17. Um, The pattern here is when children reach school age, five years old, people move outside of the greater Boston area where desegregation is not enforced. Correct. One of the one of the things we did do, Randy, was um, part of our method of producing this project has been working with the South Boston Neighborhood House. Um, We've worked specifically with uh, Caitlin DiCarlo Murphy, who is a leader of the youth program at uh, the South Boston Neighborhood House uh, involving young boys and young girls. And we did a series of projects with two of our Tufts University graduate students about to graduate, Alonso Nichols and Flor Delgadillo. And Altogether, we had art workshops with the youth where we did a variety of things, but one of the things we asked asked them to do was to create graphic maps that tracked how they understood their neighborhoods. Um, Who were they close to? What did they know about the neighborhood's history? So on and so forth. And um, this was an all-white group, as far as I know. I think about seven or eight kids. And none of them knew anything about the conflicts that had taken place in South Boston. And that is now, uh, I guess, almost 50 years ago. Thank you so much for clarifying that. And I I see where I've that. Those are both, those are really important stories. Appreciate your telling. Thanks for asking, Randy. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's absolutely integral. Caitlin Murphy who Danielle is referring to is a young woman who is very committed to giving back to her neighborhood. She grew up in Southie. She loves Southie and she's very dedicated to giving back to the youth there. And she is kind of an incredible storyteller and, and very generous about um, giving her perspectives of the concerns and the vitality, as well as the challenges of the people who continue to live in South Boston neighborhoods that are long-term residents. And uh, we've done interviews with her that are going to be in the Mills Gallery show, along with this young woman, Alicia Baez, who had this very difficult experience in South Boston High School. So they're in dialogue with each other. It's very interesting. I can't wait for this. Alicia and Caitlin um, are similar in age and almost ambassadors 
of a period that uh, that witnessed the um, residue, um, the racist residue that remains in South Boston. And um, they are willing to talk about the story. They did not directly experience the trauma of what took place in 1974, 75. Um, yet they saw and experienced the ripples and echoes of racism and white supremacy that um, existed in the area. And the ways that it continues to impact our educational system in Boston and our public schools. Indeed, yeah. Yeah, Caitlin is a, actually a public school teacher in Boston, and she teaches in Chinatown. Amazing. That, that is so amazing. That's really cool. Hey, Danielle, with that workshop, working with those kids, how did, what was your sense when you came away from it? Or did you come away more hopeful about the future? Well, I'm very excited that the community, that, we, that the kids um, tap into a larger community, their, their um, caretakers, their friends, their neighbors, who are maybe of Caitlin's age or Alicia's age, or they're, you know, are there elders in their community? And that these will be potential, these will be a potential audience at the Mills Gallery at Rights Along the Shore because they'll want to come and see um, the photographs that were taken um, by Mary Ellen Strom and Alonso Nichols as part of the project. Portraits of the kids will be presented as part of the project. So we look forward to being able to open up the dialogue. Not so much with the kids. We weren't looking to do that because we couldn't really do the follow through. We didn't have the time to do the follow through work that would undoubtedly tr be very traumatic for them to hear about. However, uh, what we hope will happen is that um, their parents, grandparents or caretakers, elders in their family will perhaps um, reopen this dialogue in a family context uh, that feels most appropriate. So does your project take a super different form in D.C. or in, I know, in the different areas that you present aspects of it? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that it, it's a similar form in terms of performance and video. But in both of these projects, there's the artwork itself, but the dialogue that happens around the projects is what is truly most important and the way that um, the community is creating this narrative. That is, I think, what's interesting to us or what, you know, we're trying to facilitate. And it has had its challenges through COVID. Yeah. And um, we're, you know, gratefully, we've been able to meet with scores of people over Zoom and have really profound conversations, but look forward to things opening up in the spring so that we can have these dialogues in person. I look forward to being able to see Danielle perform in person. I know that Danielle brings a lot of sense of humor to the, the to projects that are so as serious as all this is that I think your humor and the kind of spirit that you guys bring to this is super cool and exciting. And it's true. When you first approached me with this project, it was either early pandemic or not quite yet pandemic, but we were looking at doing a big project on the beach at Carson beach and we and um, trying to find anyone who might approve that or let us even let, even look at the beach or whatever. And I just remember the challenges of that early on. Where uh, I mean, that was like an era where there 
no, you know, couldn't find anybody. We were all hiding under our uh, beds, I think. <laughs> well, Randy, I think, um, you know, I look at, I, I think, I think we have both, but I, Mary Ellen can speak for herself, but I look at this exhibition as, um, Another step in the project, it uh, generates deeper relationships, not only with our participants, folks that have been generous enough to participate their time and energy, but new folks that might be able to help us to find a way to perform um, in a public space, um, which will hopefully be at the end of the pandemic. Um, and that there will be no more new variants and also uh, provide us with education. Like what does the community that lives at Carson Beach, what do they have to contribute? What do they want to say about the history? What don't they know? And what do they know? So in your in your performance, you're going to have, outs- you know, uh, other participants that you're going to have within the what you're doing? Well, we're, we're making the performance right now. I think it's what what is important is what Mary Ellen pointed out, which is that during the public panels, we are going to have people that are going to be presenting their knowledges through different forms, whether it be a restorative justice circle or art or poetry or scholarship. I always, um, I, I, in Lincoln gave us a beach, I should say, I, I have, I did perform solo excerpts on video and live, live streamed. But I also danced in, um, thanks to Mary Ellen's fabulous choreography, (laughs) her experience as a choreographer, I um, danced with um, a young teacher uh, named Nora Carlson-Strom, and I hope to be working side by side with other movers and speakers and poets um, as part of this work. I love how collaborative uh, the the project is, too. It just it pulls together many different people who may or may not be full-time artists to examine something that I'm guessing most people just want to not think about because it's difficult. Well, that's at the core of Mary Ellen's work. Mary Ellen, do you want to talk about your history of working with the communities that you've worked with? Um, sure. But uh, yeah, thank you, Danielle. And thank you, Oliver. And yes, it is about kind of working with groups of people around the messiness of utopian thinking and uh, really pressing each other to the promises and failures of solidarity and kind of thinking into ways for humans to imagine community and to live together that we haven't been able to imagine before. And to me, that's the promise of art. If there are new relational ways of being that are not even recognizable to us yet, how can we be inside of that? I mean... In a kind of utopian way, how can we truly obliterate anti-blackness? To borrow from Donna Haraway, how can we stay inside the trouble? Which goes to Oliver's question of not, not turning away from this history, but being in it in another way together. And, you know, we kind of make the work through walking the road. So it's creating the work with communities and with each other to imagine these 
different ways of being in relation or different futures. And it's deeply collaborative. You know, I um, have kind of given up on artistic authorship a long time ago as an interest or, yeah, went through a long examination at one time of what it means to be an artist and kind of the ego involved in that. And it has become somewhat distasteful to me. So I am kind of much more interested in um, working with others and trying to kind of understand that space between us as what is important, whether it's the space between kind of myself and other humans or myself and animals or myself and nature, but um, how, how to inhabit that space well and in new imaginative ways. To me, that's what art production is these days. Mary Ellen, that's beautiful. And that is precisely what you just uh, what you just articulated is precisely what I love about working with you. I had an interview with Gail Shaw Clemens yesterday, who's going to be part of our project in Washington, D.C. She lives in southeast D.C., 10 minutes from Anacostia. And she was talking about her family's um, her the, particularly the women in her family, her aunt and her mother's experience of um, de facto segregation um, in D.C. And she said at some point, she said at one point, you know, this is very heavy. This is all very heavy. And I agreed. I said, yes, this is very heavy and it's, it's heartbreaking. And the media has turned this history and I think continues to turn the stories of racism and and um, interracial relations and the complexity that always ensues into a kind of spectacle and um, and simplifies it. And I have to say that, you know, going back to the public nature of this work, what's most important to me and where I find the healing and the joy is in the connections that we make with these partners, whether it be Kenneth Carroll or um, Gail Shaw Clemens or Michael Patrick McDonald, people that are thriving, Ebony Rosemond and Black Kids Swim, people that are thriving and producing and coming up with creative alternatives that are in response to the history that take the predominant media-based narrative that is grounded in white supremacy and turning it, turning it and creating new forms. And I know that in these projects and in my performance and the work that Mary Ellen and I are doing um, through this series of wait-ins, what we want to do is create an environment that, yes, reflects on the history but looks at the impact not only in terms of where things are not restored, not recovered today, but also the cultural forms that do continue to provide healing and alternative methods of living together in a nation that really is that is in the history of anti-blackness coming from enslavement as the root of our capitalist structure. We look to create joy. Yeah. So tell us something uplifting. How do you, how do you recharge your, how do you recharge yourself? It takes a lot of energy to do this kind of work, right? What's your recreation? 
And what are you listening to? What are you reading? Tell us. Do you want to go first? Ice skating. Ice skating. I try and ice skate every day. Yeah. Yeah. No way. Way, way, way. Yeah. And I, I really enjoy it. And I love kind of feeling the wind and listening to the crack of the ice. And uh, I did I did a waltz jump recently, which I haven't done for maybe 15 years or something. It just it, I wasn't thinking about it. It just happened. Yeah. And I also kind of meet a lot of uh, people at the rink. And there's a, a, a lot of um, a Latinx community in Jamaica Plain that skates. So that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. God, it's so cool. Is that outdoor or can you indoor roll, skate during during the pandemic? It is outdoor. I am a girl of the outdoors, Randy. I always feel like I'm wasting my life every second I'm indoors. I am really into the healing power of being outside in the world. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love it. it. Even in the freezing cold. Ice skating. Yeah. Mary Ellen, I'm curious, is there music playing when you ice skate? Often terrible radio. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Kind of like Uber. On horrendous speakers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which I think is always Uh, really funny. That is very funny. Um, I'm going to say how I recreate because I just started a new form of recreation and I want to stick with it. My mother is a yoga teacher. Stephanie Abrams, mm-hmm. God bless her. She's a yoga teacher um, and she's also um, uh, a yoga athlete and a tennis athlete. And um, and she gave me a subscription to my yoga teacher on Zoom. So I've been doing restorative yoga, yoga for stress and anxiety. Um, and I also live in a neighborhood which is right near the uh, channel here in Boston. And just walking along the water, I find very healing and refreshing in between my zoom meetings. (laughs) Super nice. I love it. I wanted to say something about podcasts too, um, because I do, I listen (laughs) to podcasts all the time. There have been podcasts (laughs) that have been really informative to this project, um, put together by Jacobin, the people's history podcast fiasco has a podcast about Carson beach and, uh, the Boston busing and desegregation, But one of my favorite podcasts, I'm wearing actually a T-shirt that I got because I'm uh, a supporter, is the Rialto Report, which um, looks at um, the golden age of porn in the 1970s and how it emerged and how it became public and how it became golden and how it um, followed a kind of diaspora from New York to L.A. as it moved from film and loops to video. And um, uh, the podcaster, Ashley West, just does remarkable, really compassionate interviews with uh, with um, this, the stars of porn. Um, wow. Annie Sprinkle being wow. one. So interesting. Well, you guys, I mean, we know that one of the most special things about you also is what amazing educators you guys are and how much difference you've made in Boston in your years teaching here. But 
I love the resources you're giving us for our um, show notes because <laughs> that's going to be a really fun part of putting this thing together. So I'm keeping a big list here for anyone who's listening. <laughs> well, I'll send you more, Randy. I have I have a Please. million bookmarks open on my computer right now. I, I do believe I need to know more about the history of porn in the 70s. I think it's a kind of a gap in my knowledge. How about you, Oliver? <laughs> Probably. Yeah, we gotta we gotta bone up, as they say. <laughs> I think you're making fun of me, Randy. <laughs> no, no, are you kidding? I'm actually in awe. <laughs> I'm a, an admirer here. Sure. <laughs> I would also want to mention Tripod, which um, has done really remarkable um, podcasting about the history of New Orleans, particularly around Hurricane Katrina and the aftermath. Super nice. So good. Well, you guys, this has been so generous and wonderful. It's really, really nice to get to talk to you. Yeah, I think we're good. Oliver, honey, like last questions for these wonderful. Now my mind is blown. I got a lot to think about with uh, what we what we just uh, heard, and I'm really excited to see the show. When does it uh, open? Ooh, such a good question. April twenty second. Ninety nine percent sure on that, <laughs> right? No, April twenty second, two thousand twenty two. Here we come. Right, yeah. right. Good health to all. Good health yeah. to all. Let's just keep moving forward. Um, yeah. Oliver, you were an SMFA. Uh, you're an SMFA alum. No, I am a outsider from the art establishment entirely. Um, I actually <laughs> came at it through like really bad vandalism, and then I became <laughs> a really inspired by street art and graffiti as a movement, and uh, found my like my way through that as an organizer. Then through commerce, uh, street street art and streetwear became like my vocation. So I started a company with uh, two other people, and we became pretty uh, pretty successful very quickly. And then we opened an art gallery in Fenway Park area uh fenway neighborhood not in the park itself and uh that's where i, I first met uh mary ellen oh. and oliver just has made an incredible contribution to smfa um i think for three years we did remarkable exhibitions in his space called fourth wall gallery that was kind of for a very long time, my favorite gallery in Boston. It was huge and radical and adventurous and uh, anything goes. And um, <laughs> he was incredible. Oliver was just incredibly gen generous in letting our students do wild and woolly experiments in there that really pushed their work. And I will forever be grateful to you, Oliver. Well, I'm grateful to, to to you. I mean, it uh, so it was it was awesome learning from someone who actually knew what they were doing. <laughs> we, we had no idea what we were doing, and that's probably why we let everyone just do whatever they wanted until you were shut down, right? Uh, we we gracefully exited, um, but I was yelled at by the city at one point. So, but that's time. I guess that's a tale for another time. It was yeah. everything was perfect and wonderful at all times. I'm going to recycle yeah. that term, Oliver, gracefully exiting. That's good. I can, I can rewrite a lot of my personal histories with that. Please send me um, information, if you can, about your um, product line and any information about the gallery, uh, the, even though I know it's... Oh, yeah. I've already added you to all our mailing lists. And, um, <laughs> Don't worry. You're, we already started tracking your Facebook uh, cookies. There so. you go. Yeah, lay it on me. <laughs> you might get a phishing email from me later asking for uh, some Bitcoin. <laughs> 
Don't even. All right. I don't know how we end because I can't remember. But I also, Oliver, are you the only one of us who grew up in Boston? I did, I did, I'm not one of the people who grew up in Boston, no. I came Wait. here every Sunday to Chinatown to pick up groceries for our Chinese restaurant in Lawrence, Mass. Oh, yeah. You I grew up in grow New up Hampshire. Here. Is that right? Yeah. So, like, close enough. Yeah. But anyways. But your family had okay. a restaurant in Lawrence? Oh, yeah. It was it was tough. Yeah, what a what a beat up industrial city. Yeah. It was like a fast food place. We had like, you know, fried plantains and fried rice on the menu. Was it Cuban Chinese? No. It was just whatever, whatever the local population wanted, plus whatever my dad figure out how to cook um yeah it was it was rough i seen i seen some things man like uh my my job when i was probably like eight years old was to double check the bathrooms to make sure no junkies passed out before we closed and i'm pretty good at it i got promoted uh, in my first week all right well we're, we're going off topic note. yeah <laughs> Anyways, that, that, that this sounds like something to have a coffee over. I think we could probably swap some stories. I need a healing circle. <laughs> the next episode is going to be us interviewing Oliver for sure. <laughs> yeah, I got some things I got to get off my Make chest. Make sure you send me that. Clog my inbox yeah. with that podcast. Yeah. Right. I'm going to get you now. Anyways, you guys, thank you so much. Thank you, Randy, for your thoughtful questions. And thank you, Oliver, also for your 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 really great questions of opening things up um, uh, in a material way. And uh, it was really just such a pleasure to talk about the project. 